Science Talk will begin after this brief message. Are you ready to fight the COVID-19 pandemic? Introducing a $4 reliable laboratory antigen test from Beckman Coulter, a leader in clinical diagnostics. With this test, laboratories can now run up to 200 tests per hour, utilizing their current workflow. Find out how you can use the COVID-19 antigen testing at your business, community, hospital, school, or university on a weekly basis and help save lives. Ask your local hospital or reference laboratory about the Beckman Coulter test or go to www.beckmancoulter.com forward slash Siam. That is B-E-C-K-M-A-N-C-O-U-L-T-E-R dot com forward slash S-C-I-A-M. This is Scientific American Science Talk. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... They eat kind of the inner bark of trees, the cambium. They digest that and they kind of they, they poop out this viscous black pudding-like substance, um, which they then re-ingest. Uh, and when it comes out again, it's, you know, it's basically like sawdust because their, you know, their microbial communities have, have extracted uh, every last drop of, of nutrition from it. That's environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb talking about, you probably figured out, beavers. His 2018 book about them is titled Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. The book won the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award and was named one of the 50 notable works of nonfiction that year by the Washington Post. Before the pandemic hit, Ben was visiting New York City and we met at Scientific American to talk beavers. Ben, let's start. You gotta tell the story of the beaver paratroopers. <laughs> yeah, you have to. No discussion of beavers would be complete without it. Uh, yeah, so the, the story of the, the beaver paratroopers dates back to 1948 in Idaho. Uh, beavers had started to recover from the fur trade and uh, were sort of increasingly coming into conflict with, with people. Uh, so, so the Idaho Fish and Game Department, uh, to its credit, instead of deciding to kill the beavers, decided to relocate them into what is today the, the Frank Church Wilderness. Uh, so first they tried to move them back there on, on horseback. You know, the horses didn't really appreciate having these big, smelly rodents strapped to their back. Uh, so they decided to try another technique, which was, so this is 1948, it's right after World War II, there are all of these, you know, surplus airplanes and parachutes lying around, and uh, they decided to try to airdrop some of these beavers into the into the backcountry, uh, and they basically, the, the first, the first sort of concept was to, to create this this crate made out of willow that the beavers could chew their way out of once they were dropped into the backcountry. But then, you know, the cooler heads prevailed and they realized that you don't want the beavers chewing their way loose inside the plane, obviously. It's a, a real a real risk. Because they could go through, what, an inch of willow pretty quick. Oh, yeah, no no problem. Uh, so they, they tried another crate, which is basically this kind of this suitcase-like contraption that fell open upon impact. Uh, and they tested that a, a few times on a, a beaver named Geronimo, of course, uh, and then they were ready to go, and they, they dropped uh, 76 beavers. Now, Geronimo, during the testing, became so accustomed to being caught and put back in the box that eventually just went back in the box by himself. Exactly. Yeah, poor Geronimo got very habituated to being the, the crash test pilot. Uh, and it's you know it's it's funny this is all like laid out so beautifully in this this paper in the Journal of of Wildlife Management I believe uh, they just don't write 
you know, scientific papers like they used to. It, it's such a beautiful paper. Uh, anyway, so they, they dropped 76 of these beavers, including Geronimo, uh, into the backcountry, and 75 of the beavers actually survived. One uh, somehow got free from the crate in midair and was a casualty, uh, but the rest of them made it. And uh, when, they, when they flew back over that same area the next year, they found that the beavers had actually built dams and lodges and all the places where they've been dropped. So this, this was considered an incredibly successful state-of-the-art program. Uh, it's no longer how we, how we do things uh, when it comes to beaver relocation, but uh, at the time it was, it was uh, wildly successful. So beavers, according to your book, uh, have shaped the landscape of North America. Beyond, unless you're an expert on this, you would not believe how much beavers have had to do with making our continent look the way it does. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, I, th- I think the reason we don't recognize that, of course, is that we trapped all the beavers out, right, in the, in the you know, starting in the 17th century. Uh, so by the time, you know, white naturalists and explorers began taking notes on what this continent looked like, all the beavers were basically gone and the, the landforms they'd built had, had changed. But it's true that, you know, you, you look back, I mean, historically, we had as many as 400 million beavers uh, on this continent, all of them or many of them building dams and creating ponds and wetlands. And and, uh, and estimates of ponds go up to 250 million at, at- to one time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, covering, I mean, hundreds of millions of acres of, of wetland that when we eliminated those beavers just vanished. And, uh, and when was the heyday of beavers on the continent? Yeah, I mean, beavers have beavers have been here, um, you know, nobody quite knows how long, but eight million years or so uh, is the, the kind of the best estimate about when the, the genus Castor uh, sort of returned to North America. Beavers evolved to the kind of the, the first uh, Castorids evolved in North America, crossed the land bridge into Europe and then returned in more or less their their current form. So for millions of years, they've been, you know, building dams, creating these these watery habitats uh, and trapping huge volumes of sediment. I I think that's a really big deal too. You know, we look at a lot of these these flat river valleys, you know, and think, how did they get so nicely leveled? And you know, in, in some places the story is is glaciers, uh, but elsewhere, you know, it's really thanks to beavers slowing down flows, impounding sediment, and basically creating these beautiful flat lush, incredibly fertile floodplains. You know, beavers kind of made agriculture possible uh, in much of New England, for example. Yeah, I mean, people in New England thought that the land was really rich, but they didn't know that it was the beavers that made it rich. Yeah, the, be- the beavers in large part, and of course, Native Americans burning and, you know, creating creating uh, open open pasture areas. Uh, so yeah, no question, beavers were hugely influential in, in shaping North America. And when, when we wiped them out, again, we, we forgot uh, how important they'd been. You know, we, we kind of suffer from this ecological amnesia uh, in, this, in this, this continent in a really big way. And what were the consequences of wiping out the beavers? Yeah, the consequences were were immense. You know, we, again, we lost all of that, all of that fantastic, lush pond and wetland floodplain habitat. That would have been catastrophic for amphibians that breed in those in those those kinds of ponds. Uh, it would have been disastrous for juvenile trout and salmon, for instance, which really require beaver-created wetlands and ponds as rearing habitat. You know, waterfowl. Uh, you know, are, are, are huge beaver beneficiaries. Moose, you know, it's almost it's almost impossible to name a creature that that doesn't in some way benefit from from more watery habitat on the landscape. You know, so we don't really think about beaver trapping in the same terms as we do the deforestation of New England or the you know the busting of the the Midwestern prairie for for agriculture. But it was kind of this seminal, uh, hugely influential environmental catastrophe in a lot of ways. Beavers don't 
know that they're doing this, but when they um, create their habitat, they're also, you mentioned all these other species, they're creating an incredible habitat. It's so biodiverse and so rich in numbers that uh, it, it just makes the whole ecosystem thrive and be more productive. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, like, like you said, I mean, beavers, they're not doing this deliberately, right? They're basically, you know, beavers are, they're kind of these fat, slow, smelly, you know, morsels. Uh, wolves and cougars and bears all, you know, love, love beavers. So, so when they build these dams and ponds, you know, they're just basically trying to create the extent of their or expand the extent of their own habitat, right? They're trying to make themselves safe and they're kind of their watery element. But, you know, as you say, uh, in so doing, they're kind of they're they're creating all of these collateral beneficiaries as well. You know, it's I mean, in the American West, especially where the land is, is pretty arid, uh, you know, something like Wetlands cover 2% of the total land area and support 80% of the, the biological life. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, pretty, a pretty big deal for sure. You have a, a line in the book. Um, it's like a slogan. Beavers taught fish to jump. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yeah, exa- exactly right. You know, it's, it's funny. It's um, some of the, the biggest naysayers uh, in the the beaver world are, are salmon biologists, or at least that was historically true. I think that's that's much less true today. But there there was this attitude that, hey, you know, we know that dams are bad for fish, right? We're trying to tear dams out uh, on the Elwha River, for example. Why would we want more dams in a, in a stream? Uh, but of course, you know, Beaver dams are nothing like our human concrete dams right there. You know, fish can jump over them. Uh, they can swim around them during high water. They can even wriggle through them in some in some cases. Uh, and in fact, you know, beavers are creating they're creating this amazing kind of slow water refuge for for juvenile salmon, especially. So, you know, there's no question that the evolutionary connection between beavers and salmon goes back, you know, millions of years. I mean, these, you know, these, um, there's no question that beavers were once much more abundant and obviously salmon were spectacularly more abundant. So clearly these, these two species have a pretty deep evolutionary connection. And that's, yeah, that's my, my favorite bumper sticker is right. Beavers taught salmon to jump because it really gets at that, that deep co-evolution. So the original fish ladders were really these series of beaver dams on any particular stream or river. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, think about if you're, if you're you know, if you're a juvenile fish, if you're a, you know, a little baby uh, coho salmon, you know, the length of your pinky, I mean, you don't want to live in the, the, the fast main stem river, right? You're just going to get blown downstream. You want some kind of nice, you know, slow water refuge where you can kind of chill out and get away from predators and conserve your energy. And that's what, that's what beavers were doing is creating these amazing rearing habitats for, for baby fish. And, you know, the adults have no problem getting upstream to spawn. I mean, there was one study that found individual steelhead, which are, you know, sort of like sea run rainbow trout, uh, passing more than 200 beaver dams uh, on their way to spawn. So clearly they're, they're having no problem with these these barriers and and uh, we, we need we need more beaver dams for sure so they're the genus castor and I learned in your book that um, the name comes from the Latin name comes from the uh, it's related to the inability to really observe easily what sex they are right the right. individual the females and the males look pretty similar unless you do some real digging. <laughs> they, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, and that and that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, male beavers have have internal genitalia because you know, you know, if you're if you spend your whole life swimming around log jams, you know, you don't want some little dangling appendage that you're going to get snagged on something, right? It's much more hydrodynamic to have the 
the internal genitals. Uh, so the only way you can sex a beaver is actually by smell. Uh, you have to, they have, they, so beavers are very scent-oriented animals. They have to have poor eyesight, but great senses of smell. Uh, and they have two sets of scent glands, their, their castor sacs and then their, their anal glands. Uh, and they basically, you know, they use their anal secretions to, to kind of mark their territories and communicate uh, with, with one another. Uh, but, you know, by, by sort of squeezing out a dollop of this anal secretion, which is, you know, definitely you want to do this with, you know, goggles on and your you mouth it. closed. Mm -hmm. I did it. Yeah. You know, you don't you definitely want to minimize your beaver anal gland handling time. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty intense. Uh, but if you if you if you kind of take a whiff of what you what you squeeze out, um, if if it's a, if it smells like motor oil, it's a male beaver, and if it smells like old cheese, it's a female beaver. So and that's that's how you know apparently. So we got the uh, the fascinating anal glands, but um, beavers physiologically they're they're really weird. Um, you know they're they're very different. They're uh, they're not marsupials, but they're really different from a lot of other fur bearing critters. Yeah. And uh, they have an extra set of lips. They've got uh, these orange teeth, right? That are just wild, and they've got that big delicious tail. So <laughs> yeah. let's just talk a little bit about beaver physiology and, and how strange they are. Sure. Yeah. They're, they're crazy critters for sure. I mean, the, so the, so the tail, since you mentioned that, I mean, the tail is, you know, that's, that's the most sort of recognizable beaver feature, obviously, but it's, it's also an amazing organ in its own, in its own right. You know, the tail serves all of these functions. It's a, it's a rudder while they're swimming. It's a, it's a kickstand while they're out of the water chewing on trees. Uh, it's also, it's a fat storage device. So beavers uh, put on a ton of weight in their tails for the for the winter. Uh, and then it's this really cool sort of uh, counter current heat exchange system, basically. There's kind of this specialized network of blood vessels at the base of the tail. You, and you'd see the same the same sort of structures in in a lot of um, warm blooded fish, you know, like bluefin tuna and great white sharks also have these same kind of countercurrent heat exchangers uh, that beavers use to regulate their body temperature. Um, so you know they don't they don't hibernate; they're they're active uh, all all winter long. So you got to stay warm somehow, and uh, the tail plays a really big a really big role in that. And is is it true the tail is or has been historically? Uh, classified by the Catholic Church as a fish. Yeah, the whole the whole beaver was a, was a, considered a fish, uh, and that was basically a, a workaround. You know, meat was uh, was was prohibited for Lent, but uh, you know, people still wanted uh, their their protein, and and beavers were considered a fish. But beavers, what I learned recently is they're they're not um, they are not kosher um, because they're they're a, a non scaled. Uh, water animal. Ah, very so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, they, so, the, a, so the Catholics were into them and the Jews were against as them. As a mammal, they should be kosher though. Right, but, right. But they live in the water. Interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was primarily a, a uh, French-Canadian uh, work around the, the beaver classification? Well, that even really predates the French Canadians. I mean, that goes back to, to European beavers mm, um, mm -hmm. where, yeah, they, they, those, those beavers were, were considered acceptable for Lent. Very interesting. So uh, the teeth, these wild orange teeth. Yeah, they're they're amazing. So, they're, so the reason they're orange is they're actually they're structurally or chemically fortified with iron, uh, which beavers derive from their their uh, their their 
their food, their their tree prey. Um, and uh, yeah, the teeth are you know incredibly uh, strong and durable, and they're actually self sharpening. Uh, you know, if I had my little my little beaver skull with me, which I often take to talks, um, you know, I could I could show you. I mean, that the the front, the top, and the bottom incisors uh, kind of come together in in this way that that uh, they basically file each other down uh, and create these these chisel like points that are perfect for cutting. So if you imagine two uh, two claw backed hammers, yeah, and right. Put That's them a... next to each, uh, you know, to, uh, invert them and put them next to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the teeth are filled with iron, so it's really not that big of a stretch from the back of a hammer. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a really good visual, exactly. Uh, but, you know, the teeth the teeth are not totally immune to breaking despite their their strength and and uh, if if one if it, if the top tooth breaks uh, as as does happen, uh, that bottom tooth, you know, no longer has its companion top incisor to to sort of file it uh, and it can actually grow up and into the roof of the mouth and even even into the brain. So beavers, you know, people report finding these beaver skulls that have these crazy overgrown bottom teeth that have actually, you know, penetrated the roof of the mouth, which, which is probably a pretty rough way to go, I would imagine, if you're a beaver. And what else about the beaver physiology? They can obviously stay underwater for an extended period. Yeah, they've got, you know, all of the all of these great adaptations for this this semi-aquatic life. You know, you mentioned the lips, which I think are really fascinating. They actually have, they have this this second set of, of fur-lined lips they can close behind their front teeth so they can chew and drag underwater without getting water down their their throats. Uh, they have a second set of eyelids, uh, this kind of this translucent nictitating membrane, these goggle-like eyelids they can close. Uh, so they've got, you know, all kinds of cool underwater adaptation. And then, and, then they, and then they've got all kinds of, you know, and I think that scientists are still really coming to understand how this works, but, you know, but they, I mean, they digest cellulose, right, which which we can't as humans. Uh, and they've got, you know, they, they just have these incredibly rich gut communities, you know, amazing, an amazing microbiome that, that does a lot of this work for them. They're basically, uh, you know, eat, eat barks, they, 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 the kind of the inner bark of trees, the cambium. Um, and then they, you know, they, they, Digest that, and they kind of they, they poop out this this viscous black pudding-like substance, um, which they then re-ingest, and then they you know then they that that goes that goes through their body another time, uh, and when it comes out again, it's you know it's basically like sawdust because their you know their microbial communities have have extracted uh, every last drop of of nutrition from it. They're so fascinating. Now the the history of this country in terms of white people here was exterminating the beaver either for pelts to sell as currency or as uh, as fabric um, and then because they were causing floods on private property right so first of all how important were beavers for uh, the economics of the, the continent once uh, Europeans came over yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to overstate how central that resource was to you know to early white economies in in North America. You know, I mean, the in in the Oregon Territory, you know, they they had uh, instead of the gold standard, they had the pelt standard. You know, where they they minted coins that were worth a single beaver pelt. So the entire economy was was pinned to the the value of a beaver. Uh, you know, I mean, another example that's that always blows my mind is is uh, you know when the Pilgrims arrived in New England. You know, they owed lots of money to their creditors back in Europe, and they could only they could only repay those debts by shipping beaver pelts back across the Atlantic after trading for them from from Native Americans. So it's you know it's 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 hard to overstate. I mean, you know, the beavers made the you know beavers made the the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony possible uh, in a in a really big way. 
So and, it's hard to overstate the, the, the connection there for sure. And I mean, there were so many different Native American cultures on the continent and there were very different relationships with beavers among the different communities. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, you know, what I think, what I think what's, what I think is really cool about that is, is just the ways in which indigenous ecological knowledge inform those relationships, right? So in, you know, in, in, in the, in kind of the Northeast uh, corner of North America, you know, tribes like the Cree, um, you know, which lived in, in a place that was very, you know, they live in, living in the boreal forest. It's really, it's, you know, it's dense. Uh, it's very wet, right? And, and, uh, and by trapping out beavers, you know, they could actually create these kind of open, open areas that were great for hunting. These, these kind of these lush uh, meadows that were really good for attracting deer and other games, you know, so, so the Cree were really enthusiastic participants in the fur trade, uh, you know, and trapped beavers and, and sold the pelts to, to white people. Uh, but then as you, you know, as you get further west, uh, you know, you run into tribes like the, like the, the Blackfeet, in Montana, um, which uh, revered beaver uh, because they understood that, you know, hey, you're out west, you're in this very arid, dry environment, and these creatures that create these fantastic, lush, wet oases are really important. So they're, so they're actually cultural prohibitions uh, against beaver killing uh, among the, the Blackfeet. So they, did, they didn't take part uh, in the same extent uh, in, the, in, in the fur trade. So it's, it's cool to me how the yeah, that 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 really sophisticated understanding of what beavers do to the land gets encoded in in culture and religion, uh, with some some pretty big implications for how the the West was colonized. You know, I mean, the reason that you have trappers like, you know, like Hugh Glass, the guy in The Revenant, you know, or Kit Carson, or Jedediah Smith, you know, or or Jim Bridger, you know, these guys whose names are plastered all over our, our the, the Western landscape, is because they couldn't get. Native Americans out west to do their dirty work for them, right? Because tribes like the Blackfeet, again, revered the beaver. So, you know, the ways in which that that indigenous cultural knowledge shapes uh, North American history is pretty fascinating. And then we wipe them out, basically. Um, I think you say in the book that in New York State, there were like five beavers in the whole state, and they were up in the Adirondacks. Yeah. And I was in the Adirondacks last summer and saw... I must have seen – I wasn't really even looking too hard. I must have seen five beaver yeah. dams uh, as I was bicycling around up there. And so, you know, obviously they've come back really strongly. There was a beaver famously spotted in, in the Bronx, believe it or not, for people who uh, you know don't know that be- beavers were all over New York City 300 years ago. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there hadn't been a beaver spotted within the five boroughs of New York City for – what almost two hundred years? Yeah, yeah, and now, yeah. now they're back. They're back in uh, Staten Island too, actually, mm. as of as of last year. So they're yeah, they're the rebeavering is is happening for Interesting. sure. Interesting. And you you have this uh, in the last chapter of the book. There's a slogan: "Let the rodent do the work." And there's a tension between some private landowners and the public good. But for um, most of society. The presence of the beavers is actually good. It's good for the environment and it saves money from uh, a lot of public works budgets. Uh, Obviously, there are some instances where it costs money, but on the whole, it's a net benefit. 
And right. but there are still people who are virulently anti-beaver because you know, and you can understand their land gets flooded and they right. don't want that. But there have been workarounds. Of, well, I've, I've been yapping now, so let me let me ask you to just talk about that whole situation. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's a that's a really interesting challenge, and that's you know that's true of a lot of conservation, right? I mean, it's you know out 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 west where we've got grizzly bears and wolves. You know, those those wild that that wildlife is is you know it's a public resource, right? And having it is in the public interest, but you know it's at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's you know farmers and ranchers who have their their uh, cattle and sheep preyed upon, you know. So out there, I mean, there there are programs for dealing with that sort of thing, right? I mean, if you're you know if you're a, a rancher in you know in Wyoming and you're you know you're you're uh, cow gets eaten by wolves, you know, you can you can get some kind of compensation uh, from the state, you know, and nothing like that really exists for beavers. But I think that I think that would be a really cool model, right? Because they're you know beavers are providing all of these fantastic. Public benefits, right? These, you know, these positive externalities. An, econom- an economist right, might might say, uh, you know, they're filtering our water by slowing it down and kind of filtering out pollutants and sediment. They're, you know, they're storing water in the face of climate change. They're producing all of this great fish and wildlife habitat that you know fishermen and hunters uh, love to love to utilize. Uh, you know, they're sequestering carbon. They're doing all. They're, so they're doing all of this fantastic stuff that we, the public, enjoy. But as you say, uh, you know, it's it's really private landowners who who have to deal with beavers when you know their trees get cut down, or their fields get flooded, or their irrigation ditches get plugged up. You know, and and um, in general, the way that those sorts of problems are dealt with is by trapping out the offending beaver. And you know, to I me, mean, to me, that's that's kind of that's kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, these animals are providing again. I mean, an individual beaver is providing thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, in in ecosystem services, and you know that's it's getting it's getting killed because it, you know it cut down a, a couple of cottonwoods. That's just you know that's that's from a I mean putting aside the kind of the humane issue, um, that's just from a cost benefit analysis standpoint that doesn't make any sense. You know, so I'd love to see some kind of you know some kind of uh, beaver compensation fund or you know a beaver mitigation bank or something like that. You know, some way of matching up those private costs with the, the, the incredible public benefits that, that beavers are, are providing. And you do have some people out there who have created things like the beaver deceiver, right. which seems to be surprisingly effective in a lot of cases. Yeah. So the, so the, the beaver deceiver in particular is, uh, it was invented by, by this guy, Skip Lyle, up in, up in Vermont. And, and basically the way that it works and the way that all of, that all of these, so the beaver deceiver is, is kind of part of this broader class of, of techniques called flow devices. And flow devices are basically these pipe and fence systems uh, that that regulate the height of a beaver pond. So you basically, you know, you, you can imagine kind of like a big, uh, you know, twenty foot long plastic, one of those black corrugated plastic pipes, and you run that pipe through uh, a beaver dam or through a road culvert, and the pipe is basically moving water from the upstream side, from the pond side, to the downstream side. Right? It's just draining water out of the out of the beaver pond. And then you kind of you, you put um, you know some fencing or a cage basically around the the two ends of the pipe so the beavers don't figure it out and plug the pipe up because you know they're they're they can be pretty smart at times uh, and so so you're essentially creating this this leak in the dam right uh, and uh, you know you can basically say hey you know I like I like having the beavers here I you know appreciate all the great stuff they do but you know I don't want to have to you know 
snorkel through my, my backyard and uh, basically use a flow device to, to regulate the height of the beaver pond at a level that's ideally acceptable for both the beavers and the, the people. That's the, that's the goal, you know. And, and I mean, the reason it works so well in a, in a lot of ways is, you know, when you trap beavers, right, all you're doing is putting up a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers. As long as the, the habitat is good, the beavers are always going to come back. So by using one of these flow devices, you can kind of keep the beavers in place and uh, solve the problem without killing anybody. You have an example in the book of a, a community in Massachusetts, I think, that was faced with a beaver flooding situation. And, and rather than trap them out, they decided to try this system and they wound up saving a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there there are you know a bunch of towns in in New England um, that have worked with you know the, they're kind of these two the the two big flow device experts on this side of the country are Mike Callahan and Skip Lyle, uh, and you know there are lots of communities that Mike and Skip have have worked with to kind of beaver proof you know. And I was actually just at a beaver conference naturally uh, with with Mike last week, and he presented this this research, uh, basically showing that you know that these flow devices were were saving taxpayers' money in, in uh, at least one town, uh, about, about $8,000 a year. Uh, and that's just, that's just in, in trapping costs avoided, right? Because again, all of this trapping is, is expensive. So it's 8000 bucks a year just looking at the, you know, the costs of trapping compared to the costs of using these flow devices. But then when you, when you add in all of the wetland habitat that the beavers are creating, the town's, the town's getting about $2 million a year in ecosystem services. And again, that's, you know, that's water treatment, that's wildlife habitat creation, uh, you know, that's, that's water storage. Uh, these animals are just incredibly valuable. And by not trapping them, you're allowing them to create all of this great habitat. So from a strictly, I mean, just putting aside the environmental benefits, this non-lethal coexistence technique works really well, but then when you factor in all of the environmental benefits, beavers, you know, pay for themselves and, and then some. And what's the uh, figure? It's it's upwards of eighty percent of certain agricultural runoff compounds or elements are getting um, mitigated by beaver ponds. Yeah. Absolutely, you know we got we have a huge nitrogen problem in this in this country. You know we got we have all of this this agricultural fertilizer and you know and, and lawn fertilizer and and uh, you know all kinds of other suburban crap uh, basically running into our into our waterways and you know and causing these algal blooms and dead zones. Uh, and you know beavers by by basically creating these kind of settling ponds can can take care of a lot of that stuff. You know there was a, a study in in Rhode Island I think it was a couple of years ago that uh, yeah that found that beavers were capable of trapping as much as forty five percent of the of the the nitrogen uh, in in southern New England, which is you know just a gigantic figure. Uh, you know so then you th- then you start thinking about you know the vast uh, you know Mississippi basin, which is which creates this you know the enormous dead zone of the Gulf of Mexico every year, and you start thinking well you know we know I mean, right now, all over the, the Midwest, people are, are using constructed wetlands as a technique for mitigating some of that, that nitrogen runoff. You know, maybe there's this animal that can do some of that work for us. You know, historically, the Mississippi Basin would have been a, you know, just a giant, epic beaver wetland. You know, you, I mean, you read about... Uh, explorers crossing, you know, what is today Indiana and, you know, not finding a dry place to camp for a hundred miles because beavers had so thoroughly impounded the, the you know, water there. Um, so, you know, you start, you start to think maybe these animals really can play a, a big role in, in our, uh, our, our pollution mitigation. Yeah. Instead of killing them, eating them and selling their pelts, you can get them to build things for you. Right. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. You know, I mean, like you think about, you know, the, I mean, the typical 
you know, building an acre of wetland, you know, by done as when it's done by a you know consulting firm or an engineering firm. I mean, that's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars in in many cases, or certainly tens of thousands of dollars. And yeah, here are these animals that uh, do it for free without requiring you know army corps permits. Uh, if you just stay the heck out of their way, so yeah, let the rodent do the work, as you said earlier. I think that's a good mantra. Let the rodent do the work. So, one of my uh, favorite things to do is to read the acknowledgments in books. Uh, mine too. I, yeah. yeah. And don't skip them because, you know, sometimes you'll get some good stuff. And what I learned from reading the acknowledgments of your book was that you wrote a lot of this book in Aldo Leopold's house. Yeah. Which is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, how did that happen? Yeah, that was incredibly fortunate. So so uh, there's there's the, the Aldo Leopold writing program in New Mexico. And if anybody doesn't know who Aldo Leopold was, let's tell them. Sure. Yeah. Aldo Leopold is, you know, he's, he's, he's one of our, our most famous uh, conservationists. Uh, he's the, the author of uh, Sand County Almanac, which is, you know, sort of uh, the, the Bible, I think, for most for most modern ecologists. Uh, it's an incredibly contemporary book. It, it really read it, rereading it really is, is, a, is a rewarding experience. Uh, and he was he was a forester um, in in New Mexico at the start of his career before he moved to Wisconsin and and uh, you know created created the the, the shack there the farm uh, that that really where he you know where he, where he wrote San County Almanac uh, he was this 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 New Mexico forester and had many of his you know his most formative experiences out there uh, and he built he built this cabin which is now uh, available to writers and residents. Uh, and there's there's no um, there's no internet at the, at the house, and uh, there's very limited cell phone service. So it's a great place to to write. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wrote I wrote a big chunk of this book there for sure. Aldo Leopold. He didn't write much about beavers directly, uh, but if if you if you read his work, there's I mean there's a lot in there that touches upon uh, beavers. So you know, so I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Thinking Like a Mountain, which is you know which is which is one of his famous essays where he basically describes you know he describes what today we would call a trophic cascade, right? Mm-hmm. Where if you eliminate predators, uh, you basically let deer proliferate and they overbrowse uh, forests and kind of create ecological catastrophe, right? Which is, which has happened in a lot of you know most of most eastern forests are now just overrun by deer. Uh, what he didn't mention, but what we're kind of coming to understand is what a big deal that is for beavers too, right? I mean, if, you, if you've got deer or elk or, or moose or any, you know, uncontrolled ungulate population browsing all of this streamside vegetation, you know, you're basically eliminating beavers' food and construction material, right? So, so in places like, like Yellowstone is kind of the classic example of this, where we, you know, we killed all the wolves in Yellowstone in the 1920s, uh, and then elk, you know, took over and, and basically browsed the park down to nubbins. You know, we actually lost a huge number of beavers. I mean, Yellowstone was historically a giant beaver swamp, essentially, you know, or at least many of, many of the drainages there were. Uh, so, you know, by letting, by eliminating predators, letting the ungulates go crazy, we incidentally or inadvertently eliminated beavers too, and we lost all of those really valuable services they bring. So that, so that notion of, of, you know, thinking about the connections in an ecosystem and understanding the ways in which predator elimination affects forests, which is, you know, one of the, one of the big themes of Leopold's writing, has a really interesting beaver connection too. Uh, New York was a, a beaver hub in terms of uh, commerce, and you, it also was loaded with beavers. But um, you can uh, you can find beavers on the city flag. Yeah, and yeah. go to the Astor Place subway station, and there are beavers on the walls everywhere, and that's related to. 
the city's history with beavers and also John Jacob Astor. The station is named for Astor. I mean, this Astor Place is named for Astor. Right. And uh, he became the equivalent of a billionaire on the backs of beavers. Yeah, that was you know before he was a real estate magnate. He was a he was a fur trader, uh, and it's it's true. I mean, there's yeah, there's you know there's there's a great book called uh, Astoria. Uh, by by Peter Stark, I believe is the author, uh, where he you know he he kind of lays out the history of of Astor's fur trading uh, empire essentially, and you know I mean Astor, you know sent sent his agents west basically hoping to to establish a, a fur trading outpost that would that would have you know essentially given most of Western North America to John Jacob Astor. You know, his, I mean, his, his aspirations um, were just unbelievably vast. But it is true that that was, you know, before, yeah, before he became a real estate guy. He was a beaver guy. And, you know, beavers uh, ultimately funded a lot of the construction in, in New York. I mean, even, you know, you go back even further, the, you know, the, the real estate transaction that, that uh, you know, transferred the island of Manhattan from, from, the, from the Lenape to the Dutch, uh, that was, you know, we talk about the, the trade for the land itself, but actually the, the, the island was just kind of a, a pot sweetener, you know, or a throw-in. The real, the real uh, heart of that deal was it was, it was actually a fur trading deal uh, where the Dutch were acquiring, I think, 7,000 or something like that uh, pelts from, from, from the Lenape, uh, and they just kind of tossed the island in as well. So beavers were, you know, at, in the, at, at New York's heart from the get-go. Yeah, so there are famous pictures, uh, or portraits, I should say, of Rembrandt wearing a beaver hat. Right. And those beaver might have come from New York. Oh, it's it's certainly possible. Yeah, or you know, or Connecticut or Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, this you know, the, all all of again, all of the uh, along with you know, timber and cod. That was kind of the big the big resource. So when you were writing the book, uh, what was something that just made you go, "Wow"? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think that one of the really fascinating stories to me is is th- is the return of beavers to Europe uh, you know I mean here we, we of course you know we we have we basically brought our beavers to the brink of extinction and, and then brought them back in North America but in Europe they're, they're even they're even closer to extinction you know there, there's something like a thousand beavers left uh, at their at their nadir compared to about a hundred thousand was the, sort of the low point here in North America so this is a, a related species yeah, same right. genus different species right so we so we have castor canadensis and they have castor fiber uh, on the the other side of the Atlantic and in and in, in Asia as well. Uh, so just you know, learning more about the the history and the the return of of the, the Eurasian beaver, I think, is really fascinating. You know, we 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 actually know we don't know a whole lot about where it used to be. You know, I, was, I mean, again, I was at this conference and you know, and there were researchers there presenting historical evidence that there were you know that there were beavers in Iran and Iraq. You know, that there were beavers in North Africa. Uh, you know that there were beavers in in Israel. Uh, you know that I mean beavers were incredibly incredibly widespread uh, in in Europe and Asia as well. You know I mean there were beavers in China, Mongolia. Uh, you know up all the way to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so it's you know the the extent to which beavers were modifying that landscape as well. I think is really fascinating, and we don't. You know, we don't know a, a ton about it, honestly. Um, but you know, w- what role were beavers playing in, in those ecosystems as well? I think it would you know, if there's a, an aspiring uh, master student out there, you know, looking to do some good historical ecology work, uh, I think that would be a cool project. It's a really fascinating book. There's uh, a lot in it that makes you review your own um, just assumptions. Uh, you know, stuff you never thought about the continent where you live uh what it was like before people of any kind came along right because really you know let's let's be uh 
really expansive and say 50,000 years ago, there probably weren't any human beings on North America. Right. And it was beaver freaking heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and just it's really amazing to to consider the effect. I mean, we always think of ourselves as this species that has humongous effects on environments. But it's really amazing to think of this other species that has such powerful uh, such a powerful influence on wherever it goes. Absolutely, yeah, and that's you know, I mean, I mean yeah, and to me, that's the that's the lesson of of beavers is it's just humility. You know, we're we're so as as uh, as human beings, we're so enamored with our our, our world changing powers and our you know our incredible construction feats and our, our amazing intellects. You know, and and here's this animal that okay, that's you know, they're not they're not. Um, you know, they're not building the Empire State Building, but they're but they're they're creating these incredible structures that you know clearly require, um, I, I would argue, uh, you know, a, a large degree of planning and foresight and consideration, uh, and they're you know they're having you know not not the same magnitude of impact, but the same kind of impact, right? They're another creature that's that's shaping their surroundings and and uh, having a really incredible uh, level of influence on on history and and ecology and biology. Uh, so so to me, that's yeah, I like I like beavers in that they they are like humans and they're they're sort of their passion for rearranging their surroundings. But of course, they do it in a way that uh, promotes other forms of life rather than uh, dis- destroying them like we tend to. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.